Today from the Global Lane, U.S. troops withdraw from Afghanistan. Return of the Taliban? There will be a safe haven recreated in Afghanistan, not unlike what we had prior to 9-11. Sudanese demand justice for Darfur and greater religious freedom for Christians. They really do want their fundamental human right. Mask mandates lifted and now a new COVID threat. How concerned should we be about variants like the Delta variant? We should be very concerned. Teaching civics and no history, failing grades for 20 American states. Are you celebrating right the fourth on the or turning lane. your back on the USA? End of an era in Afghanistan. After 20 years, all remaining U.S. troops will be out of the country within days. Security in the country is deteriorating. Some members of the Afghan security forces are laying down their weapons and are returning home. The Taliban reportedly now control 50 of 370 Afghan districts. Is the country heading toward a bloody civil war? Well, here to provide some insights is Major General Jeffrey Schlosser. Mr. Schlosser is former commanding general of the 101st Airborne Division and Regional Command EAS. He's author of the new book, Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. General Schlosser, it's good to talk with you, sir. So Marathon War, America's longest, now withdrawal and a strong Taliban ready to pounce. Are all the gains slipping away? Is Afghanistan heading for disaster? Your thoughts? Gary, uh, first I want to, you know, reassure everybody that's listening that, uh, you know, for 20 years, uh, you know, our daughters, our sons, our men and women uh, from America and our NATO allies prevented another attack on our country like 9-11. So for two decades, we've enjoyed some security from being involved in Afghanistan. But as you say, uh, the Taliban are making huge uh, military uh, having military success throughout the country. There's no need for them to do any kind of uh, you know applying themselves to a negotiated treaty. They're going to take over the country militarily here, and we're going to leave. And that's going to leave, I think, a huge vacuum in the area. And I would say that without trying to be grim, uh, you know, to our listeners, uh, I think that uh, there will be a safe haven recreated in Afghanistan, not unlike what we had prior to 9/11. Well, General, uh, that's not very positive there. Uh, you know, you're a 34-year Army veteran. You served in Afghanistan for 15 months. You were the first global war on terrorism planning director at the Pentagon. So please explain to me how the U.S. goal of eradicating al-Qaeda and its bases in Afghanistan evolved into nation-building and fighting the Taliban. How did that happen? Yeah, and, and Gary, that's a wonderful question that the American people need to understand. You know, we went in there right after immediately 9-11 with a very simple mission. Uh, bring al-Qaeda to justice, either through capturing or killing their leadership and the majority of their followers, and then also to get rid of the Taliban, because the Taliban had provided that safe haven. We, by and large, pushed al-Qaeda out of the country, and they, they went to Pakistan. And eventually, over about another nine or ten years, we were able to capture or kill Osama bin Laden and capture or kill most of the al-Qaeda leadership at the time. But that didn't mean they were eliminated. And uh, what we did is we also pushed out the Taliban. So we were relatively successful. But about mid-year of that, our mid-decade, we, we looked around Afghanistan and we said, my gosh, if we don't stay here, this place is just going to roll back to being uh, just another, you know, uh, complete safe haven for terrorism and planning against our country. And so we made that sort of, and I won't call it a fatal step, but we made a decision to move forward in nation building. And uh, it's taken trillions of dollars, a lot of uh, lives, a lot of national treasure in the way we always say blood, blood from our you know, uh, young men and women. And, uh, and that is 
been uh, fairly unsuccessful. You know, I, I have to be honest with you, you know, Gary, when we look around, we were unable to recreate Afghanistan and what we wanted it to be, which was we didn't try to be a democratic country. We didn't think of that or, or you know, something like America. But we wanted to be a successful country with its own government. And uh, this is proving to be um, uh, is, you know, it's not going to be, we have not had a success. How's that? Well, nearly 2,400 American deaths, 20,000 wounded, many of them limbless or with life-changing, life-altering wounds. Also a big cost in American treasure, more than $2 trillion uh, to right. wage the 20-year war. So since my generation's war, Vietnam, it seems like the United States wages war, we pay a heavy cost, then we leave without winning. Has Afghanistan been worth it? Uh, what we wanted to do was take the fight to their country. If we were going to have a fight against terrorists, we were going to do it where they were rather than have it in our country where we would have civilians involved. And I think we've been reasonably successful. I mean, we've had to be involved not only in Afghanistan, but around the world. You know, this war against terrorism is not going to go away, even as we face, you know, a re resurgent uh, Russia or however you want to look at Russia and then, and, you know, pair competition with the Chinese. The terrorists are, have not given up. Uh, they don't like our country. They don't believe in our economy. They don't believe in our system of government or the rights that our citizens have. And we would be naive to think that this ends as we walk out of Afghanistan. Okay, Major General Jeffrey Schlosser, author of the book Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. Thank you, General, for sharing your experience and your insights today. We appreciate it. And Gary, thanks for having me on the show. Two years after the ouster of strongman Omar al-Bashir, Christians in Sudan say the interim government isn't doing enough to bring about religious freedom. Is the government actually enacting significant reforms, or has it stalled in bringing change to Sudanese society? Well, joining us is the president of Hardwired Global, the Richmond, Virginia-based non-government organization, is helping the people of Sudan in their efforts to democratize their nation. Tina, it's good to talk with you again. So I know some Christians say they can now purchase alcohol in Sudan, but that isn't really the change they're looking for. Is Sudan actually embracing religious freedom or is it just window dressing? I think that that's the million dollar question right now, Gary. It's great to be with you. You know, the people of Sudan have been fighting for their freedom for a very long time. And when they finally ousted Omar al-Bashir, I don't think that they were doing it to get alcohol, like you said. I think they really do want their fundamental human rights protected in a constitution. And I think it's time to really ensure that all of those aspects of, of basic human rights are in the constitution and that they're institutionalized across the society for the people. And the United States lifted sanctions and the state sponsor of terrorism designation against Sudan last year. So what other reforms do the U.S. and Western nations want to see Sudan enact? Well, they did. And we saw right around that time that, that Sudan said that they would guarantee religious freedom in their new constitution. Uh, but there are still so many institutional changes that we need to see happen. Uh, I mean, as you as you know, that the, the um, ICC and Sudan agreed to, to send some of the indicted war criminals from the genocide in Darfur over to the ICC to be prosecuted. I think Omar al-Bashir obviously needs to be at the top of that list since he was the first person ever, you know, convicted of genocide. The United States even helped declare genocide on, of, against, you know, what was happening there many years ago, recognizing it. So I think that institutionally we need to see the people that, that Bashir was surrounded by really 
moved out of power so that the military class isn't the one still operating the country from behind the scenes. Yes, we saw large crowds in Darfur as a ICC uh, investigator prosecutor uh, visited there. They want justice. They want to see Omar al-Bashir pay. And I've got to ask about the world's youngest nation, South Sudan, now celebrating 10 years of independence. There's been a lot of fighting and division in South Sudan since then. They've experienced recent flooding, a drought, myriad of problems. So how close is South Sudan to unifying and finally accepting a new constitution, Tina? Well, I'd like to say that they were close, but I, I don't think that they are. I, you know, they've been pushing it off for at least two or three years now. Uh, my organization, Hardwired, has been very active in helping train the parliamentarians and other key leaders throughout the government to understand you know, what does it mean to have a constitutional government, a government established by the people for the people where it protects the rights of the people? How do you serve your constituents? How do you educate your constituents on what their rights are? We've seen the United Nations in there for over three decades, and still the people are ignorant of what their rights are. So clearly it's time for for the people of South Sudan to really understand what it means to have freedom and to sustain it through a, a governing body that protects those freedoms. And that's what I've been working for for the past two years in South Sudan and will continue to work for this year to have a a peaceful transition of power next year with elections. I think they're supposed to take place in the winter this coming year, but it keeps getting pushed back. So we are hoping and we are preparing for that. And really, until the people are prepared, I, you know, I don't know what good an election would be. OK, Tina Ramirez, president of Hardwired Global. Thank you, Tina, for joining us. Thank you, Gary. Mask mandates. While most U.S. states are lifting mask requirements for people who are vaccinated, most airlines are keeping them in place. On several occasions, that's led to rage and the arrest of passengers. So is it time to drop the mandates and go back to our previous maskless lives? Well, here to weigh in is Dr. Salvatore Giorgiani. Dr. Giorgiani is a senior science advisor to the Men's Health Network and a past chair, chair emeritus of the American Public Health Association. So, Dr. Sal, with more people getting vaccinated, is it time to put away our masks? Well, I think we still have to be cautious and you have to be aware of your circumstances, just like everything else in life. You know, what works in one uh, area doesn't necessarily work in another. So I think, and some people really, they've been wearing masks, Gary, for the better part of a year or more. Uh, and it takes a little bit of time to get back into the rhythm and feel comfortable. So I think there are some situations if you're if you're older, if you have immunologic problems, if you certainly if you've not been vaccinated, uh, one of the most important things you can do is get vaccinated. Uh, and if it makes you feel better, uh, wear that mask in crowded indoor situations. Outdoors, that's not necessarily been appropriate thing to do for like a very long time. Uh, and uh, I think that we're slowly getting to a point where we will get back to not having to wear masks in any venues. Dr. Sal, I've noticed some people are scorned for wearing them. Others are ridiculed for not wearing them. And in the Dr. Seuss book, you remember the Sneetches. Star-bellied Sneetches are cool, the best of society. Plain-bellied Sneetches are shunned. So how likely is it that we're creating a society of Dr. Seuss Sneetches? Yeah, I think that is one of the terrible liabilities we see uh, here, not only with mask wearing, Gary, but also with having been vaccinated. That One of the things that we enjoy in the United States is our personal freedoms. 
that has to be protected. Uh, certainly with those freedoms comes responsibility. So, you know, but I think that a lot of what we're seeing now speaks to just how fragile our freedoms are, whether you're talking about a medical context or whether you're talking about a social political context. Uh, we are teetering, I think, on a, on a on an area that's of some questionable ethic, ethical morality. Well, speaking of that, it seems that the airline industry and some others are pushing this idea of requiring digital passports to show that you've been vaccinated. So how concerned should we be about that and privacy rights? Well, I think that they are trying to strike a balance between how to keep their, their personnel, their employees safe, keep the traveling public safe, uh, and also move in and out of different countries. Don't forget, it's not just about traveling within the United States, about traveling internationally as well. Uh, I do think that we need to have some way of acknowledging someone who has been vaccinated or not vaccinated for lots of reasons. So I don't have any particular aversion to vaccination proof. Uh, you can do these things uh, in a way that protects your personal privacy, uh, and uh, that that technologically is certainly feasible. Um, now, the, the next question, Gary, is if you've identified someone who has not been vaccinated, what do you do? Do you deny them boarding? Do you deny them boarding for a business trip, to attend a funeral, uh, to go on vacation? What do you do? Do you have just planes for unvaccinated and vaccinated? We all have to sort this out. Millions of Americans are still not vaccinated. Many are skeptical about the vaccine effectiveness. Others don't feel they need it. I know someone who was vaccinated and still contracted COVID-19. So how concerned should we be about variants like the Delta variant? We should be very concerned. Uh, you know, the, the vaccine makes, it, makes you immune to the effects of the virus. Uh, you still can carry the virus. It's just not going to do anything to you. We also believe that there is good data to suggest, strongly suggest, that if you're vaccinated, it's much harder for you to transmit the virus to another individual, but you can. Uh, and also we have to keep in mind that as wonderful as these vaccines are, uh, especially the Pfizer, Moderna, J&J vaccines, they protect you to the point of 90 to 95, not 100%. Uh, and then with the Delta uh, variant that we're seeing now, and maybe others to come, that drops down to maybe 88%. So it's very hard to know, Gary, if you're in that 90, 88, 90, 95%, or if you're in that other minority who still will get it and still get sick. It's all a matter of degrees. It's not an on or off switch. Okay, Dr. Salvatore Giorgiani, thank you for sharing your time and scientific expertise with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having us on. In this era of wokeness and critical race theory, how are American public schools faring in teaching of civics and history? Some states are doing much better than others, and you may be surprised to learn which ones are doing the best. Well, here to set us straight by sharing the results of a new survey is Amber Northern, Senior Vice President of Research at the Thomas Fordham Institute. So, Amber, thanks for taking the time to share the report with us. So, please reveal which states are doing the best job of teaching children civics and history, and why is that important? Yeah, it's, it's kind of surprising. It is Alabama, California, Massachusetts, Tennessee, and the District of Columbia, which, you know, are, are all both political stripes. Those are red and blue states. 
which we were kind of surprised to, to see that, uh, but just those five states and jurisdictions across the country, we only had five A's, which is a little depressing. We wanna see many more A's across the country. But I think the lesson for us is, you know, there's all this cancel culture and critical race theory, but no matter your politics, if you're a state that really cares about getting this right, about being factual and about not biasing the teaching, uh, you can have folks of all political stripes come together and actually write good standards in civics and history. It can be done. And which states were at the bottom of your list? Did any receive failing grades, Amber? 20 apps. Uh, I, won't, I won't name all 20, uh, but Vermont was in that uh, bucket, and, uh, and North Carolina was scoring pretty low. Uh, Alaska was pretty low. So 20, 20 Fs uh, in both civics and history. That's way too many. And then we had, you know, obviously the rest of the states are falling in the middle in the B 